all around us. There is an unseen battle raging. A battle we are a part of. Even if we don't always recognize it. In the midst of this battle, we are called to be faithful witnesses. To endure. And hold to an abiding trust that tomorrow is one. And that today, no matter what is taking place around us, the king sits upon the throne. The pages of scripture are full of this hope. And while the revelation given to the apostle John is often mysterious, it offers a clear promise and a clear message to God's people. To those who conquer, our hope is sure because our victor is sure. Endure and bear witness to him, the one who sits upon the throne, the one who is worthy, the one who was, and is, and is to come. Good morning, church. If you please stand with me out of respect for God's word. Today's scripture is Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them onto the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he know his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of the mouth after the woman, to be swept her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept the commandments of God and to hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Megan. So real quick before we pray, I want to do something. I want to, before we jump into Revelation chapter 12, I want to, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge those of you who uh, are, are seniors. You've graduated this past uh, week, or maybe you're doing it this week. I'm not sure how that's playing out for everybody. If you are a, were a senior in high school or you just graduated college, would you um, stand real quick? I promise I'm not going to make you do anything strange. We just want to acknowledge you. Um, we know that you put a lot of work in um, to high school to college and those things. And so, um, man, I just want to encourage you as you start this new journey, the stuff we're talking about today, even for you in particular, um, is so important because, because there's an enemy and he desires you and he desires to come after you. And so this stuff is important for you, but I want to open up in prayer um, for you as well as our time together. So join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, these young people. Father, whether they graduated from high school or graduated college, like I know that uh, they've got a lot of life ahead of them, and they've got all kinds of uh, just new journeys, new beginnings in front of them. Lord, as they, as they step into those new seasons, they step into those new journeys, I want to pray, Lord, your protection over them. Uh, I pray that you would guide them. I, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just uh, protect their hearts, their minds, their souls, and ultimately their love for you. May they keep their eyes fixed upon you. Father, may you raise up for yourself, uh, your, continue to raise up for yourself, your church in this generation, Lord. New leaders, new missionaries, new moms and dads, new uh, people to invade uh, the spheres of business and politics, people who are devoted to you and want to follow after you and, and to see your kingdom come. Lord, would you bless them? And Father, I pray now that you would bless us as well as we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 12. Father, there's so much here. Uh, and there's so many ways we could go, so many directions that we could take this. So, Father, I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us by your spirit, that you would lead us to truth, always to truth, never away from truth. Uh, Lord, certainly that you would speak through me, um, just a weak vessel. Uh, may you, uh, anything that comes of me, may you help us to forget. But if, Lord, it is of you, may you just plant it deep into our hearts and by your spirit, grow it up into full maturity. And so, Lord, um, we just give you this time. I pray and ask that you would be blessed uh, by it and that you would give us your favor. I pray and ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, we're entering into Revelation chapter 12. You can probably see why maybe I didn't want to jump into this text on Mother's Day last week. Um, certainly, um, not like I said last week, not exactly the way I wanted to honor our moms. And so we get to go back into Revelation chapter 12. As we jump into Revelation chapter 12, let me ask you a question. How many of you ever heard the term um, movie magic? You know, the idea of movie magic. And so if you don't know what that term is, it's that whole idea is like, can we watch movies and we see all the stuff that's going on in those movies and, and we get brought into the stories and it feels real to us, whether that's 
um, you know, people running away from dinosaurs or whether it's Captain America grabbing Thor's hammer and getting ready to beat Thanos or uh, the, that scene in The Empire Strikes Back, uh, Star Wars, where Han Solo and Princess Leia go into a room and there's Darth Vader and he shoots at him and he blocks and then pulls the gun out of his hand. Well, the, the, we, we get into those movies, we feel that that's real. And the idea of movie magic is that when you see behind the scenes, it all feels a little ridiculous, right? Like if you've seen that before, you see people behind a green screen and they're talking to nobody or they're running away from nobody or that epic scene where you see someone like falling out of the sky. They're really only falling like three feet and on a nice cushy bed um, with, covered in wires and all kinds of stuff. When you, when you see behind the scenes what seems so menacing in someone like Darth Vader you just realize it's just a dude in a suit, and there's some people throwing guns around and doing all kinds of strange things with camera angles. And so when we see that, it can really ruin the movie magic. You think, oh, wow, this is really crazy. This is ridiculous. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, it's the same thing but opposite. We're seen behind the scenes, but if instead of seeing something that looks um, fake or looks like it's unmenacing, we're seeing the real issues that are going behind. And we're seeing the enemy for who he really is and what he is really doing. And so God is opening up this curtain and he's giving us kind of this, this cosmic view of all that is going on. As we look into this, as we think about what's about to take place and what we're about to read this morning, the intent for us is that yes, we as Christians, we live our lives a little bit more sober, understanding what's going on behind the scenes, but also the desire is that we would also be a little bit more bold. And ultimately, that we would be a lot more joyful because we understand what's happening. And so what I think what's happening is we're getting this pulling back of the scene. We're seeing this cosmic scene. And in scene one, we have a very clear picture as we see people coming into this scene. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We see the first person on the scene, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Well, who is this woman? How do we know who this woman is? Well, we know who this woman is because we look at certain images that are given to us, the sun, the moon, the stars. We see that she's pregnant and she's crying out in birth pains and agony. She's about to give birth. Like, who is this woman? Have we ever seen these things before? Well, we have, and as a result of those things, we see that this woman is the faithful people of God. It's the people of Israel. Why do we believe that? Well, one, because we understand that we're seeing a full picture of things, and we understand that God has been using his people, the people of Israel, um, from Genesis all the way through to this point in history as a way of telling his story, as a way of seeing things, but that's not the only reason. If you recognize the images of the sun, the moon, and the stars, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that may spark some memory. Anybody remember the, the, the dream that Joseph had about his brothers and his mother and his father? If you're not familiar with that section of the Old Testament, Joseph, one of the um, 12 sons of Jacob, like he sees a dream. And in that dream, he sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. Well, we know that the sun and the moon represented uh, Jacob and his wife, and the 11 stars represented his other brothers. Well, now that image shifts to 12 because it's the 12 tribes. So we see this is the people of Israel. This woman is an image of the people of Israel. But it doesn't stop there. 
We also see in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are seen as a woman in birth pains. And again, if you're familiar with the story of the people of Israel, you know that there are their history is one of kind of cycles where they, they, they do amazing and they, they follow the Lord for a season and then they fall and then they repent after God has brought wrath or punishment. And there's this cycle over and over again. But in the history of the people of Israel, they, they had this promise that one day there was going to be a Messiah or a Christ, a ruler that would come and ultimately redeem them and restore them and and fix that challenge. And so in the Old Testament, we see this idea that the people of Israel are like a woman in birth pains. They're waiting for that Messiah to come. We see it in texts like Isaiah 66. We see it in other places where God talks about his faithfulness to bring out of Israel what he plans for the salvation of not only the people of God, but also the entire world. And so we see this woman, people of Israel, and she's in labor, she's in Aggie, she's, she's about to give birth. And then we see another sign. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems or crowns, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. It's an important point. And cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Here we have the great adversary. The dragon. The one that is behind the scenes. The one who is fighting against God. Fighting against his people. Fighting against God's purposes in this world. We see the adversary, and he is the devil. We don't have to guess about who the dragon is because Revelation verse 12, verse 9 tells us the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. Think about the Garden of Eden. Who is it that, that, that convinces Eve to take the fruit? It's the serpent. And here we have the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first we need to see that this dragon, this is the enemy. This is our enemy. This is your enemy, my enemy. It's the enemy of, of God. And this is a terrifying image. At least it should be. It should be a terrifying image. I think a lot of times we miss how terrifying this is. We get the wrong picture of the enemy. I remember when I was a kid, um, I, I watched uh, the movie Alien for the first time. My parents did not let me watch the movie Alien. I want to make sure that they understand, you understand that. That would be a bad move on their part. Um, I, sn- I sneakily watched. I don't even know if that's a word. Sneakily? I don't know. Some of you grammar people will come after me. But I, I watched the movie Alien when I was a kid. I was terrified. There's this movie about this monster that's trying to chase and kill everybody. And I watched it. And I didn't sleep for like two nights. Um, it was a bad idea. That's why my parents wouldn't let me see that movie. But nonetheless, I did. And listen, we should have that kind of a feeling a little bit about what we're seeing in this picture. But I think oftentimes what happens when we think about Satan, we have this picture more like Bugs Bunny cartoons where he's down in a fiery hell with a pitchfork and horns and a long tail and he's red. And and we have this other image of him that's not accurate. It's not real. But we need to see the real enemy. He isn't to be trifled with. Like we know ultimately, we're talking about this, that God is over him, but nonetheless, like he is not to be trifled with. 
He has seven heads and ten horns. The point of this is to show the completeness of his oppressive power, a power that we see in Daniel chapter 7, a power we see in Daniel chapter 13, which often takes the form of real, physical, earthly representatives and kingdoms and individuals. We see this dragon wearing seven crowns or seven diadems as he flaunts his false, catch that, false claim of sovereignty and control over this world. It's not his, but it's a false claim. And it's the world we live in. The serpent is so powerful. He's so strong. And we see this picture of him even taking his tail and sweeping across the sky and bringing stars down into heaven or down from heaven onto the earth. And many people see this text and they believe that this is representative of of the angels that fell with Satan, that he sweeps them down and pulls them out of heaven. But I don't actually believe that's what's being communicated here. Remember, we're seeing a cosmic picture and we've seen something like this before. In Daniel chapter 8, we're told of a a ram and a goat, and this goat would come up and would um, go after the people of God in essence. And out of this one ram who had one horn, there would be four horns that would come out, and it would be that one horn that would come against the people of God. And listen to what it says about this horn, and I'll explain it here in just a second. But Daniel chapter 8 says, It, being the, the goat and the horn, grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. Remember, the people of God are seen as the stars. And again, now we see in the Old Testament a prophecy of of the stars, the people of God being trampled by this, this great earthly leader. Well, Daniel doesn't leave this to mystery. It tells us what this is. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, it tells us this is Greece, and that this one leader is likely Antiochus Epiphanes who would stand into the temple and in, uh, in the sacrifices. And this was an extremely dark time for the people of Israel. And so here in Daniel chapter 8, you see them looking forward to that event. But in, Daniel, or in Revelation chapter 12, we're looking backwards. And what we're seeing is that the enemy is after the people of God. Why? Because he knows what's coming from the people of God. He knows that out of this people, a male child would come and would strip him of his power. And Satan hates him. Satan wants to devour him. This is looking back so that it can set the stage for what is currently in the present, but also what is to come. And we move on. And what is the Satan enemy doing? What is the dragon doing? He's waiting for the woman to give birth. And she does. This is, this is Christmas morning. What a great Christmas morning text. You imagine this picture on your Christmas cards this year? Nice, peaceful baby in a manger, giant, red, slobbering dragon with seven heads. Like, we think of silent night, but it was anything but silent. When it came to heaven, it was anything but silent. Like, the angels rejoiced, and the enemy was raging seeking to devour the child. Like in just a few words in Revelation chapter 12, we see the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ultimate ascension of Jesus, the Son of God who would take the throne, the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he is protected by God. He is caught up to God. And Jesus now sits in the throne room. He's out of reach of the dragon. 
as if he ever was really in danger in the first place. And wow, we are given insight into what happens next. And in this cosmic overview, we kind of are entered into this second scene because this causes a war in heaven. And again, I said many people have believed or said in the past that, that this scene represents the war in heaven before creation. But I don't actually believe that's the case. Notice what is said in verses 8 and 9. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, them being he and his angels. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's this war in heaven that takes place, and there's two consequences to this war. The first one is that he has been defeated, and the second one is that there is no longer any place for him in heaven. There's two consequences to this, and I believe these consequences or should be extremely encouraging to us as God's people. But before we can understand the consequences and how that applies to our lives, we need to understand some characteristics about the dragon, who he is, what he's trying to do, what he's trying to accomplish, so that when we look at how he's been defeated, we can actually see it, and we can rest in it and celebrate in it and find joy in it. So characteristics of the dragon, what are they? Well, first and foremost, the war itself, the loss of the war, helps us to see that he is subservient. He's subservient. He cannot stand against God. He can't even stand against Michael. He cannot stand against God. When, when the Messiah was his, his most helpless point, just a baby, he was unable, unable to take care of that baby. He is completely powerless when it comes to him versus the Lord. He is subservient. Man, we need to be reminded of that. Like he looks like a dragon. He looks dangerous. He looks like he's got sharp teeth, but he has been caged. He is on a leash and he is subservient to the king of kings. Next we see in verse nine, He's the ancient serpent. I already pointed to that, right? Look at Genesis. What was he doing in Genesis? Well, he was deceiving. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He's a liar. Nothing he touches can be trusted. Nothing that is underneath his power can be trusted. He seeks to destroy through deception, which we're going to see in detail in the weeks to come and how he does that. But he is a liar. Full of lies. Next, he is an accuser. This is what he does. This is who he is. He accuses the brothers. You understand what that means, right? Like it's that, it's that, hey, here's the list of all the reasons, God, why you should have wrath upon this person. He's pointing it out all the time. Now, we see this, okay. So he's subservient to God. He's a liar, but he's also an accuser. What does this have to do with the two consequences? Remember those two consequences that we saw in Revelation chapter 12, that after the war, he was defeated and he was thrown down. He was thrown out of heaven. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, let me ask the question. Is there any a time or ever time in the Old Testament where you see Satan in heaven? The answer is yes, multiple times. 
Anybody know the story of Job? The Old Testament story of Job? It's the oldest book of the Bible, scriptures that we've been given. And what happens in the story of Job, if you're not familiar with that story or you're new to, the, to Christianity or to faith and you haven't heard all that, in essence, Job was a faithful and righteous man. And we see this picture of Satan, the great serpent, the great dragon in heaven, and he's accusing Job before God. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, oh, God, you think that Job is faithful. The only reason Job is faithful, the only reason that Job follows you is because you protect him. If you remove that, like, he'll fall. He won't be faithful anymore. He'll leave you. He'll, he'll curse you. He'll walk away from you. And so we see a picture of Satan in heaven accusing Job. But that's not the only place we see this. We also see it in the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, we see Zechariah have a vision of Joshua, the high priest, who was there to help rebuild the temple during those days. And what do we see in this vision? Let me show you. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And then he, the angel, showed me, Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So where do we see Satan? He's in heaven. What is he doing? He's accusing. He's accusing Joshua the high priest. Don't use this guy. He's a mess. He's a failure. He's a sinner. And if you know the story of Joshua the high priest and Zechariah, you hear God say, who are you to accuse the brand that I have plucked from the fire? And he gives, he gives Joshua a, a coat of righteousness, a white coat which is this beautiful picture of the work that God is doing. See, Revelation chapter 12 is showing us in vivid imagery that Satan no longer has this kind of audience with the king of heaven. He has been thrown out. As Jesus dies upon the cross, the tool of accusation before God has been ripped out of Satan's hands and therefore his power to accuse you and me before God is gone. We see this same imagery. Jesus himself uses it in Luke chapter 10 when he's looking at his disciples going out and beginning in ministry. He says this as they return. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And when we're looking at prophecy, this isn't always linear in a sense, but you're getting this idea, this picture that the work of Jesus is ultimately casting Satan out of heaven in that sense. But it's not even that. Look at Colossians, the text we've read often here. Colossians chapter 2. And you, that's you, faithful believers, those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. This is what's happening in Revelation chapter 12. This is what's happening in Revelation chapter 12. He has lost the war. He's been defeated. He's been cast out of heaven. And in fact, he is now shamed. He has now been triumphed over. 
this baby that Satan wanted to devour, threw him out of heaven, and has provided us access to righteousness that we didn't have before. And his work has taken the ability for Satan to accuse you and me before God out of his hands. He can't do it anymore. He cannot stand before the Lord and say, do you see Darren? He's been cast out. He says, no, I'm not even going to let you speak that. Get out. He's triumphed over him. He's put him on a leash. He's told him, your time is short. Is it any wonder that the defeated, shamed, and enraged enemy is going after the faithful people of God? He's furious because he's lost. He's lost. And that's what he does in this text. He turns his attention to the people of Israel, to the woman, and ultimately to the church. Look again at it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so who is this? This is all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. Who is he after? He's after us. He's furious at us. Those who keep the commandments of God. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you and me. So when we look at this text, when we think about this and what we're seeing behind the scenes, what are the truths that we need to hold to? What are the truths that we need to keep in mind as we think about how to apply this to our lives and walk in a way that gives us boldness and courage, but also joy? Well, here's some of the truths that we need to keep in mind. First and foremost, Satan hates us. I already said that. He hates us. He's furious with us because he doesn't have any way to hurt us anymore. We've been delivered out of his hands. We've been delivered out of his reach. There is nothing he can do to you or me that will have any eternal consequence. Sorry, nothing. He can't do anything to harm you eternally anymore. Don't think for a moment, though, that he is in a, his angels are not roaming around in this world seeking to devour. Don't think for a moment that because your eternal safety is secure in Jesus that he doesn't care about you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to test your faith. He wants to make you apathetic. He wants to pull you out of the battle. He wants to devour us too. Why do we so often play around as if this is not the case? As if we don't realize what he's doing and that he's behind so many of the things that go on in our world. His sole purpose is to seek, to destroy, and to deceive. And we see it clearly when we read something out of the voice of the martyrs, right? We see it clearly when we think about that young man in, in Ghana that we prayed for this morning. We see it clearly in Yemen. We see it clearly in places like Iran where people are, are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. We can see the dragon there, but do we not think he's here too? Let me ask a question. Do you not think that the dragon is behind what comes out of Hollywood? Do you not think that the dragon is behind the voices of the influencers that are on TikTok and Instagram? 
Do you not think that the dragon is behind the, the politics and the government, government that's going on in our country right now that's, that's trying to elevate and turn that which is right to wrong and that which is wrong to right? Do you not think that he's there? You kids who just graduated, you young adults, sorry. Are you young adults, you young men and women, like don't be foolish and think that he's not behind those things. He's seeking after us. He's seeking after you. He's powerful and he's furious. You honestly believe that he would leave those spheres of society just alone? Absolutely not. You don't think that he's trying to bring lies and deceit into the church? Listen, the question is, do you test even podcasts and sermons and songs that you listen to apart from here? Do you test the things that I say to ensure that they are sound, that they're in accordance with God's full counsel, his full word? Or do you just listen to it and you say, well, it's a church, therefore it must be worthy to listen to? No, no, he's in that too. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to bring all kinds of things. We're going to see in the weeks to come that, that there's a foretelling of all kinds of antichrists and false prophets that would come into the church to try to bring away the people of God. Like, are we testing those things? He hates us. He's furious with us. And though he can no longer accuse us, at least before the Lord, he can accuse us to ourselves. I think we all need to hear this. I think we've all heard the whisper in our heads, haven't we? I know I have. It's that whisper in your head. Like, man, should you even go to church today? Like, don't you remember what you did this week? Don't you remember what you said? Don't you remember how you lipped off in anger? Don't you remember what you, how you treated your spouse? How, how, how you had no integrity in your business dealings? Like, you can't share the gospel. Who are you to share the gospel? Look at all the sin in your life. You know what? You shouldn't even try to pray to God. He's not going to listen to you. You're a mess. You're a failure. He wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. Why should you even read the Bible right now? All you're going to see is how much more of a mess you are, how much more of a wretch you are, how much more sin you have. How can you, how can you go to church? You haven't picked up your Bible in a week. How can you disciple your kids? You haven't prayed or, or, or read the Word or done anything. How could you tell your kids not to watch that? You've never done that before. Like, Does anybody else hear these whispers all the time? This constant accusing. Like you're never going to be. You're a failure. You're a wretch. You're never going to be enough. You shouldn't take communion. You shouldn't go to church. You haven't prayed. You haven't done any of these things. Listen to me. This text tells us that the weapon isn't his anymore to wield. It is only going to be effective if you let it. Let me say that again. This weapon is not his to wield anymore. It is only going to be effective if you let it. How do we conquer it? When you hear that whisper, what do you say? Well, Revelation chapter 12 tells us, doesn't it? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So when you hear that whisper, you say, 
shut up. You can't accuse me anymore. I know I'm a wretch. My sin is always before me. You're not telling me anything I don't already know about myself, but all of that has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Like, you don't have anything to say. Like, nothing. I can come into church. I can come into his presence. I can pray. I can come to the word of God because I'm blameless, not because I didn't sin. I'm blameless because I'm covered by his blood. And so are you. And don't let the enemy accuse you. Don't let him win by accusing you and listening to his whispers. Listen to the truth. And then you bear that testimony and you conquer him by by being the people of God and doing the good works that he's called you to, even unto death. Isn't that who we are? We are the people who die that we might live. It is no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. I'm a mess. I know I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. But we're all covered by the blood of Christ. We're all covered by the blood of Christ. Kill us. Throw us into prison. Whisper in our ears. Take away the the praise of men. doesn't matter. Because you can't take away my inheritance. You can't change my position before the king. You can't take me out of the hands of Jesus Christ. This is the courage that the church should have, even as we look upon the dragon. Why? Because he's been thrown down. He's been defeated. He's been kicked out. Yes, we need to be sober-minded about the enemy. Yes, we need to be aware of his power. We need to be aware of his intent. We need to be aware of his accusations. But no, we do not have to succumb. We do not have to live lives of sorrow. We do not have to live lives of apathy. We do not have to be distracted. We do not have to live in despair. You do not have to live a slave to the sin that you're struggling with right now. He has given you a way out in Christ Jesus and the spirit of God that is in you. And he's promised that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Like this is the hope we have in Jesus. The enemy can do a lot to us, can't he? And we have to be real about that. He can do a lot to us. He can take away our freedoms. He can take away our lives. He can take away our respect from the world, the praise of men from the world. He can even, he can even get us to believe that the loss of pleasure in this world is somehow a loss when in reality it actually leads to life. And being a Christian, there's all kinds of loss that comes. I mean, we talk about it like we die to live. Like there's all kinds of that that happens in the life of a believer. We say no to ourselves and to our flesh all the time. But in the end, we have a secure dwelling place, don't we? 2 Corinthians 5, 2 says this. For in this tent we groan. Let me just stop. The tent is our mortal bodies, our flesh. Any else feel like you're just groaning sometimes? Like, I don't mean like when you get out of bed and you're like, ugh, 20-year-olds, that happens, I promise. But maybe it is that. I just mean the groaning of just loss and difficulty and suffering and hardship. Like, we groan. In this tent, we are going to groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, to put on our immortal bodies, 
Brothers and sisters, where is our heavenly dwelling? It's with Jesus. It's with the baby that the dragon sought to destroy. The one that was caught up to the throne room of God. It's the one who now holds the rod of iron. The one who is going to rule the nations. This is why we can join the chorus in heaven and rejoice. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That is where you dwell. That is where I dwell. We dwell with Christ. We're just passing through this place. Church, I want to leave you today. I want us to know our enemy. I want us to know that he's dangerous. I want us to know that he is terrifying, but he holds no real power over any of us in this room who are Christ Jesus. He has no real power. We can can storm the gates of hell and he can do nothing to your your eternal security. And I want to encourage you this morning, I want to encourage all of us to walk in the joy of your salvation, to walk in the joy of the victory of our king, to walk in the joy that you are covered by the blood of the lamb, to walk in joy that that he's been thrown down He's been thrown down to walk in joy that the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Like this is our hope. This is your hope. It's my hope. And so when we read Revelation chapter 12 and we see all the power of the enemy, we're ultimately reminded that it's all been stripped from him. It's all been stripped from him. He's on a leash and his time is short. I'm going to lead us into a time of communion with this in mind. Because you may have, you may have heard those accusations even today. I know I've heard them this week. Like in my own heart, I've heard the whispers. I can't tell you how many times I hear them coming up to, to preach a sermon. You're the one doing this, really? And yet every single week, we have an opportunity to be reminded of the blood of the Lamb, of the blood of the Lamb. And so if you didn't grab your communion elements as you came in, go ahead and raise your hand. There's a team that will bring those around to you. But I want to read again out of Colossians, because it's such an important reminder for us. And I'm going to lead us into a time of communion. I want us to take a moment to confess our sins, but to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ and to remember that the enemy has been thrown down and he has no longer the ability to accuse us because you, you, and I could start naming names of people, but I want you to put your name in that category. You, you, Darren, were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. just, Just stop for a second. And think about that. What do dead people do? Nothing. What can dead people do to bring themselves back to life? Nothing. What can, what can dead people do to restore themselves to vitality? Nothing. You were dead. I was dead. But God made us 
alive. Together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. I wish that we could see like he sees. Because if you're like me, we hear all trespasses and we tend to think past tense, don't we? All the ones I've done. And then I start to believe that if I go home today and I speak in anger to my wife, that somehow that's new to him, that he's surprised by it, that now somehow that needs to get added to that record of death. No, that's not how he works. All of my trespasses, the ones you don't even know about yet, the ones you're going to do tomorrow, the ones you're going to do six months from now, the ones you're going to do five years from now, all of them have been forgiven. Just think about that for a second. Can you imagine entering into a relationship knowing every single wound that person would ever do against you? We would run for the hills, but not our God. He sees it all. You were dead in your trespasses, but God made alive us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Not some of your trespasses, all of them. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He can't accuse you anymore. So I want to just lead you to take a moment to just go before the Lord and, and lay your trespasses before him. Confess your sins before him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be assured he will forgive them. He's already seen them. He already knows they're, they're there. Your confession doesn't change that. It doesn't help him see it. It's just an act of faith, trusting in him to take care of it. And in this next couple of moments of silence, if you're not a believer, I simply ask you this question. When Satan accuses you, what will you say? What will you do? What do you do with his accusations when he accuses you? In your heart, when you hear those whispers in your own mind, in your own soul, like what do you say? I don't want you to ponder that. I want you to think about that because Jesus is offering himself up so that you have an answer to that, which is the blood of the lamb. So take a couple of moments, bow your heads, close your eyes, and I just encourage you, just go before the Lord. Just confess, cast your burdens before him, cast your sins before him, cast your trespasses before him. Trust him.
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, he has been thrown down. And they have conquered. They've conquered him. We will conquer the dragon. Not because you're good enough. Not because you're smart enough. Not because you read your Bible enough or you prayed enough. We will conquer him by the blood of the Lamb. church abide in his grace.